So today on How I Scale My Team, we're really happy to host Yoni Shelmerdine, VP of Product and Leader of the EDR, XDR, Big Data and Security Research Product Areas and Sentinel One. I think it's the longest title ever, and I hope <laughs> you know they're all right. I'm, I'm not sure. Is it, Yoni, the entire title, or I forgot something and left something out? No, I, uh, security research is something that I, I was happy to, to hand over a while ago, but other than that... Uh, <laughs> it's all yours. <laughs> so um, to some of you that, I don't know, don't recognize, it doesn't ring a bell. So Sentinel One is a cybersecurity startup uh, founded in 2013 in Israel and, and in 2021 reached uh, unicorn status uh, when they IPO'd. I think if I'm not correct, you guys reached a uh, unicorn uh, status way before. I think you guys reached, what was it, 10 billion valuation at the IPO? Yeah, so I think the uh, unicorn was probably around 20, um, somewhere between 2018 and 2019. The IPO was um, just over 10. It was the biggest cybersecurity IPO ever. Um, and it's it's gone up and down since then as, as the market has. But uh, yes, it was definitely a, a successful result. Congratulations. I, I think it's the biggest IPO in, uh, for an Israeli startup to ever IPO. So congrats for that. Um, huge success. Congrats. Uh, great to have you, Ariani. Looking forward to a great conversation. But before we dive in, can you give us kind of a, a brief overview summary of, you know, who are you? What have you done and what are you doing here? Sure. Um, so uh, my name's Yoni Shalmadine. Um, I was originally born in London. I moved to Israel when I was 10. Um, grew up uh, in Rehovot um, and made my way into 8200s. Um, I spent five 8200, years. 8200, sorry, for our listeners, 8200 is the yeah, Israel's intelligence or tech intelligence unit. Sorry. Uh, yeah, so 8200 is probably the most closely equivalent to the NSA or the GCHQ. So it's um, one of Israel's uh, largest intel units and the one that focuses predominantly on signals intelligence. Um, so I spent five years in the unit and then uh, left in 2012. Both myself and several of my friends um, all sort of fell into what at that point was quite new uh, was sort of taking a, a junior role at a startup and joined a mobile security startup, gradually turning into a PM. We were acquired by Checkpoint uh, about a year and a half after I joined, spent several years as a PM at Checkpoint, much younger than, than I should have been uh, for a role at, at that size company. And from Checkpoint went to Cyber Reason, first in Tel Aviv, then in Boston. So I, I met my fiance in Boston and uh, moved within uh, Cyber Reason, spent another year and a bit there, uh, and then moved to Sentinel One uh, just over two years ago to run EDR next year. Wow. So you're, you're what, a decade, over a decade, almost 15 years in the cybersecurity space, military um, and, and tech company. Cyber Reason is also a super successful company. Um, uh, pretty cool track record. Congrats. Um, can you give us kind of a bit brief history about Sentinel One uh, as a company before you joined? Yeah. Um, so Sentinel One was founded um, alongside several other similar companies, CrowdStrike, Endgame, Cyber Reason, Carbon Black, sort of a lot of companies that were um, aiming to um, kill off 
companies like uh, Symantec and McAfee, um, sort of the the older generation antivirus companies. Silence was another one that came, was born at that time and gradually started building traction as a more advanced, um, more next generation way of, of stopping malware on an endpoint. Now, in many ways, both the, com- the, the competition itself um, and the gradual evolution of, of the cybersecurity markets, um, both on the attacker side and the defender side, gradually gave more and more addressable markets, more and more demand for these companies. And they grew and grew. They added additional use cases. Um, they added depth in each use case. Like you could say uh, they grew both in depth and in width. Um, and Sentinel-1 went from strength to strength. Um, I think Sentinel-1 specifically is most successful because of how it managed to evolve, not just the, the, the product, but also the business itself and balance really well between the different cultures, the different geographies, the different levels of experience um, at the management level. And I, specifically Sentinel-1 um, and CrowdStrike as well, both benefited from a lot of this other companies getting bought, disappearing, some with more successful acquisitions, some with less. But that really left it to, to the most capable and the strongest uh, vendors. And that's, I think, where a lot of the success has come from. So we were talking about a hyper growth, um, you know, raising funds, having more money, which led to more success, to more funding, to growth. Um, and I wonder, and you, and you started to talk about it a little bit more, what it took from Sentinel-1 to, to kind of make it successful. You were talking about people, you were talking about culture, mitigating different, um, you know, management layers uh, and levels. Let's talk about that um, as, you know, from a, from a leader perspective at Sentinel-1. I think that, that, that there are two metaphors that I, I go back and forth between um, regarding that type of situation. Um, the first, I think, is is recognizing that as uh, as a sports team, this is the NBA. Uh, it, there, there is no higher uh, in terms of the level than hyper-growth B2B SaaS. It's the hardest. It's the most difficult. There's the most competition. It's the most sensitive to every aspect. And there's no point in trying to force your way uh, on hypergrowth B2B SaaS in America. And I think that you there's no point in trying to approach this level of competition with players from the D-League. And I think that it, it's something that it's a painful uh, thing to recognize and it's a painful thing to learn. But you don't become the Golden State Warriors without having the right team and the right strategy and the right approach and the right balance between what you invest in. Unlike in sports, that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with being a smaller team. In sports, obviously, there's only one winner. In, in B2B SaaS, that's not the case. But if you are trying to go to this level, it requires everything. You can't decide to just say, I'm going to do it this way and it's going to work. That's true for smaller. Like as you grow, um, there are lots and lots of levels where innovation and um, entrepreneurship and doing it your way works. And, and without it, the company wouldn't have existed. 
But at some point, that balance changes. Uh, and I think that, to use the second metaphor, everyone wants to look good in a swimsuit uh, in the summer. But you have to, you can't do it without exercise and dieting. Um, and neither of them are fun, but it becomes a way of life if, if you dedicate yourself to it. And I think that those are the things that Sentinel One has done well. It's made painful decisions. It's um, evolved its structure and um, its strategy and its people. And I think somewhere between all of that is the path to success. You know, you gave an analogy. Sorry, Romy, I'll cut you off. I know you have a follow-up question, but um, you gave the Golden State Warriors example. And it's funny because I just, uh, you know, read over the last two weeks as the NBA playoffs started. Um, and, you know, all the all-star teams have collapsed. I mean, Brooklyn Nets and, and LA Lakers all are out of the playoffs. And, and it's a great example. Golden State Warriors is a great example of, of, a, uh, of a team that started off building off people that they brought in drafts second and third row players that they nurtured within the organization and kind of said over time we'll give them the right level of attention and you know tender love and care and we're we're certain they're going to get there um what's your approach there is it you know we're going to hire all stars or is it we're going to hire uh, b plus players and make them a, a plus um so i think it's it's a combination of both uh, i think that i mean obviously the sentinel one is is a not a small company anymore. There are, I think, around 2,000 employees. So I don't think that um, any extreme uh, in one direction or the other is, is the right approach. Um, Sentinel One, um, at pretty much every level beyond uh, the senior management team, is definitely still a place that balances between uh, new up-and-coming uh, talent. I think Israel specifically is, is definitely a place where that is still very much an option. But I think that it did make a decision uh, about three, four years ago that in the key roles, uh, be that in product management, be that in sales engineering, be that in engineering leadership, uh, marketing, it was going to hire and or keep the best that knew what good looks like and uh, also what bad looks like. Um, and I think that that I would say in hyper growth, uh, in a knife fight with a company uh, that is the best gold standard cybersecurity company in the market in CrowdStrike, you, there is no other option. So if you have to go with someone that can come in and know what good looks like, what bad looks like, who good looks like. And, and I think that's how we've maintained a balance. That doesn't mean that, in, that there are, like I said, there are lots of people that are joining with fewer years of experience. Uh, but at the leadership level, I think uh, definitely a decision was made. I'm going to make it a little bit uh, harder. It's usually Shahar's uh, job to do that. But what you say, you know, knowing what bad looks like, knowing what good looks like, can you give examples of what bad looks like and what good looks like um, in a team perspective when, when you're growing um, and, and you need to make sure that, you know, you're growing with the right people? Um, I can. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll refrain from uh, referencing which companies. Um, I think that the biggest thing that is a struggle uh, at a growing company is the correlation between um, effort and specifically 
impactful efforts and recognition. When companies grow, when done incorrectly, the people that uh, have made the biggest impacts uh, and the people that have done the best work don't often get the recognition, the path, the trajectory, uh, the, the seat at the table, because so much is going on and so much is happening and things are changing in less than great companies. I think that the good people get frustrated and the bad people somehow hides and it all gets sort of mixed up in the fog of war. And I think that at every level, junior, mid-level, senior and executive, that is a, a snowball um, that gets very tough to solve. So that, that would be one thing, meaning being having very, very clear correlation between I'm doing good work, I'm making an impact, and I'm getting recognized for it. I'm getting clear, increased numbers of opportunities from it. There's a path. It, it sort of it makes sense. What you put in is, is what you get out. And I think Sentinel One has done that very well. The second thing is clarity. I think that being able to provide clarity about what it is we're doing, why we're doing it, how are we going to go about it? What does that mean we're not doing? I think all of those things are also something that at a less than stellar company, no one knows. No one knows um, for many things why it is we're doing it. Should we be doing it? Why are we not doing that? Uh, what does doing it mean? And I think that that's another example, which even more than the first stems from a strong leadership team uh, that Sentinel One has done well. You're talking a lot about, you know, people and, and the meaning of people and significant personal changes that are required as companies evolve. You know, when you think about Sentinel One, what did you need to fundamentally change um, to keep the company moving, moving fast. I mean, one of the toughest things for start for companies as they grow is, um, you know, you grew 100% or 200% last year, everybody expects you to grow another 200% next year, although it's a lot more, it's a lot more difficult. And then 200% the following year. So how, what changes, personal changes you guys had to make to keep that growth going? And I, I can only speak to this for, from my own sort of uh, lens. Um, from my perspective, um, I'll actually start on a personal level. Um, product management is a very ambiguous role in, in B2B SaaS. Um, it's half Frank Underwood from House of Cards, half um, subject matter expert. Uh, and I think that being able to make the programmatic procedural changes to get to a point where whether it was marketing, sales, sales engineering, support, customer success, feel like they could trust that nothing would ever come out not solving a problem that they need solved. I think getting that level of trust was pivotal. That doesn't mean that everything they want would come. It doesn't mean that everything they want would come when they want it. But making sure they believe that if something came, it was net positive I think was a big, big change of dynamic. And I think that creating that level of trust and that level of belief and that level of, of partnership is, is a 
big personal effort just as much a professional one. At a personnel level, I think that my biggest change was to make sure that the people we brought in, and this is specifically PMs, uh, came from places that not just in terms of product, but in terms of process, knew what good looked like. Um, So Sentinel-1 hadn't hired a lot of PMs from cybersecurity vendors before, uh, neither in Israel nor abroad. Um, But the PMs that I brought first came from companies like Carbon Black and Checkpoints and varying other uh, vendors, smaller, bigger. It's not that you, you have to go just to look at the biggest cybersecurity company and bring people from there, but being able to come in and yes, learn a lot about the content and learn a lot about the company, but have a very clear picture of what they need to do in order to succeed from a programmatic perspective, from a dynamic perspective, know what a sales engineer looks and feels and acts like and marketing, etc. That was a big change that we made. I think the second one was more on a structure perspective than a people perspective. We made the decision to essentially give product management the keys um, to each business. It doesn't mean that that uh, I'm I'm the sole manager of all of the engineers and all of the marketers, etc. But uh, the company made the decision to go. Listen, this is your show. Uh, live by the sword, die by the sword, and and this is your strategy. And I think that giving clarity about who owns it, who who is the one saying we should go left and not right, as opposed to some sort of ambiguous thing where everyone's pitching in, but no one's really held accountable. And then you leave and you go, okay, what? And then no one knows. I think that was a very important structural change that whether it was me or or someone else, I think that the fundamental approach is is a good one. What you're talking about, um, you know, in the field of product, and we see it in different companies, we had we had an episode with um, Arbel Zinger from Lightrix that was talking about the ambiguity and the clarity and the decision making that had to be done, like who is doing what, who is accountable for what. And so we see it a lot uh, in the field of product. And um, I wanted to ask you, you know, um, some people are more kind of minded for working in a startup, some are more in corporate. Um, and I think and feel it, it is a mindset, it is maybe even, you know, a character thing. Is there um, a way that you guys identify which people are suited to, to, you know, work at a company that is considered hyper growth, that is doing these huge jumps consistently? Um, It's a good question. Uh, I think that first and foremost, the general makeup of a PM in Israel is very different than the general makeup of a PM uh, in the US. The connotations are very different about the type of person that wants the role as well as the type of person that is good at the role. In Israel, a PM is a much more charismatic, personal type role. And it, that is valued just as much as the uh, the technical expertise. In the US, I would say the balance is slightly is less so in and I don't think it's as, as equal for better and for worse. I'm not saying that the one approach is better than the other. But I think that it's less about um, 
sort of outside of Series A, where everyone is just all hands on deck and and everyone is is just trying to, to um, I'd say it's not just about the size of the company, but more about the sort of triangle of, of dynamics, which is the complexity of the problem. Uh, so is it a straightforward problem that the company is trying to solve? Is it very easy to say, okay, this is the problem. This is what we don't know how to solve it yet, but it's a very clear problem. The complexity of the solution, I mean, no, nothing is easy to build, but are there questions of scale and cost and performance and size? And that doesn't have to be the case in every product. And the third is the complexity of the company. What stage is it at? Um, is it geographically distributed? Is it not? Sort of, is that, does it have immensely challenging competition? Does it not? That's not always the case. I'd say that company dependents look at those three things and know whether someone is a good fit uh, for, for a PM role. But having said all of that, um, I think that it's a definite balance between the, uh, the personality and the professional. Um, but I don't think there's like, a, there's no um, magic recipe for uh, is someone going to be a, a good fit. I think that you look at what they bring to the table, you look at how they present themselves, you map it to those three points of the pyramid, and then you usually get a, a generally good understanding of whether someone will be a good fit, but there are always surprises. Someone that looks amazing on paper and in the interview process can end up being difficult to work with or feeling like uh, they're already too big for the role and someone that doesn't have seemingly what it takes and on paper may be willing to die for you in terms of, of the effort they're putting in. And, and so I, I don't think that there's necessarily a recipe uh, I think it is it's situational, but there are definite things which I use to guide my my process in an interview process. So, Yoni, um, as a manager, um, two questions maybe. One, how do you identify what's working and not working for you uh, in today's structure, your structure, uh, and maybe, you know, across um, Sentinel-1 and, and the other? What are your core focuses, I mean, as a manager, uh, as you're building your team? I think the first one is... Silence. Um, if there is silence that is that can be maintained for a long period of time, things are going well. Because if they're not, I'd hear about it. I, I'd hear about it from the SEs. I'd hear about it from marketing. I'd hear about it from sales. I'd hear about it from engineering. I'd hear about it from customer success and from support. Because no one stays quiet at a company like this. And I think that that doesn't mean that no one talks. But it does mean that I use that as a barometer uh, because I think that the biggest problem that a product manager can have is that they're causing friction. The less friction, the better. So I think that that's one barometer of, of what good looks like. The second one is trust, meaning if you can see that in a room consistently a PM is speaking and people are not incessantly challenging what it is they're saying. That doesn't mean that, that, that no challenges should happen, but product, there is no right answer. 
with product management. And there is always another option. There is always another feature that can be built. There is always another feature that could be prioritized. There is always an alternative approach to how to go about building it. But I think that so a measure of success isn't a perfect feature. A measure of success is that people believe that that is the right thing to build. And the, S, and the people receiving that feature see value from it. Uh, and I think that if that's consistently happening, you're doing something right. Even if it wasn't necessarily the right thing to prioritize at that time, or it should have actually be, been built differently, or the narrative about it could have been more optimal, uh, the training could have been better, it can always be better. But if you are constantly seeing that the reactions are positive, that means you're doing something well. And on a manager to employee dynamic, I think that I try and, and lead by example in terms of the quality of everything from an email to a slide to a document to a, a meeting to an enablement process and try and focus on challenging questions more than lessons. I, I don't have any lessons to teach. There isn't a thing that I could tell someone you should be doing this and, and all of your problems will go away. But I, so I think I, I try and focus more on questioning what has been taken into account, questioning who has been consulted, questioning what are the steps that went into it. And if all of those things were checked, then listen, like I couldn't have done it any better than you other than instinct. And you can't teach that. That just happens over time. So I try and, um, and do that. And finally, reward success. There is nothing, like I said earlier, more frustrating than uh, success that isn't rewarded and failure that isn't called out. Be that failure of them, my employees, or be that someone else's failure. I think the worst thing you can do is not be upfront about saying, yeah, listen, that was a bad, they made a bad decision that was unfair of them to call you out, that you couldn't have done anything else. I think that in many companies, sort of people don't say that because if you're not supposed to say that because you're supposed to, to keep things PC, for better and for worse, that, that's not the way I approach things. And I hope that that sort of builds more, uh, more trust and, and loyalty than sort of creates, I don't know, an, an undiplomatic environment. Yeah, I can agree to that. Um, you know, taking all the things that you were talking about, like who has to be on the team and the culture um, looking forward and, and maybe near future or, or, you know, in a few years, how does scaling your team looks like? Uh, major steps, major changes? Um, is it more organic now? How does it look? We, at the end of the day, we're still within the first year of us being a public company. Uh, and I think that there's, it, it's undeniably a very different situation um, than before. Everything is, is more calculated. Everything has more implications. That's true about decisions, hiring, growth, structure, etc. Um, so I would say we'll know more about what our approach over the next few years looks like in a few quarters once we've got through uh, the first year of being public on a more personal note, I think that actually product management uh, from here on out uh, is, is relatively straightforward in terms of growth. At the end of the day, 
what used to be a feature is now a product. What used to be a product is now a business. Uh, what used to be a business is now almost a company. The features being worked on by the PMs, at least the PMs, for example, and I can speak about my organization, products that have multiple features, which a PM can be working on more than one of them, have more sales than some of the companies in Israel, just on its own. Um, there are companies in Israel that are selling a few million dollars a year. There are features that are being sold for a few million dollars a year. So I think that that's actually quite organic in terms of how you grow. It, it sort of, it's very much a pyramid that's just building additional layers um, because the, the general MO sort of, of, of how we operate, I don't think will change that dramatically. We're doing more. We are growing in, in depth and in width. I think that the challenge will be how do we incorporate things like M&A? That if the, I think that's something which uh, will be a, a, a big challenge. How do we incorporate more geographies into the same work process? But overall, I see us just doing what we're doing now, but, uh, but more of it. So that's actually... Uh, something which I see is pretty straightforward. I don't think that there's necessarily going to be suddenly a change in what it is we're responsible for or what it is we need to do. Just more of it with more people at larger scale. Makes sense. More people, more often, larger scale. So, Yanni, we're almost done and we always like to kind of ask a question towards the end. Um, you know, if you had to go back um, and look at your career uh, spanning, you know, um, multi super successful companies. Um, what piece of advice would you give out to managers that are building or about to build teams in hyper growth companies? I think the first thing is find people at the company that you trust that are going to have an impact on your success. So for example, for me, it was the leadership of sales engineering and marketing and customer success and, and find people within those roles, within those departments that you trust and, and use them as a barometer for both the structure that you're proposing, the process you're proposing and the people that you hire. Meaning find people outside of the organization that you are in, within the company and use them as, as your source of truth and your barometer for what is going well and what isn't. And I think that will keep you more honest uh, than any other approach because they know that if you don't do well, they're going to fail. So it's in their best interest to have you succeed. They are as objective as you're going to get. The second thing, and, and I don't know, maybe this is obvious, but the more you can hire people that you feel comfortable talking to, not about work. And even if it is about work, then it doesn't feel forced, the better. Because I think that someone could be amazing at their job and have immense subject matter expertise. But if you don't get along with them well, you're going to struggle. Uh, and I think that's true both upwards and downwards. That's true for you as someone evaluating whether a manager seems to be a good fit for you as an employee and whether as a manager, whether a hire is a good fit for you. That doesn't mean hire only people that, that are like you um, or, or join, only join companies where everyone went to I don't know, the same unit as you in the army. But it does mean taking that into account. Uh, and I think that 
somewhere between those two, whether you're an employee or, or a manager, I think that both of them should help. Taken. <laughs> Thank you, Yoni. It was um, really great having you. Uh, and to all of our listeners and Shachal, uh, who is always here with me. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to subscribe and follow uh, so you always know when the new episode drops. We are already excited for the next episode of How I Scaled My Team. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Johnny. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for having me, guys.